If the past few years have taught us anything, it is this. Don't get too attached to your plans. Or as Patricia Ryan Madsen might put it, life is something we all make up as we go along. For many of us, the improvisational life can feel awkward, uncomfortable, and even frightening. But with some practice, reflection, and a slight shift in attitude, it can also lead us to a life filled with yes, one where opportunities and adventures flow naturally into our lives, ones that we willingly embrace and follow just to see where they might lead us to next. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. In this episode, we're going to learn about the practice of improv from Patricia Ryan Madsen, author of Improv Wisdom, Don't Prepare, Just Show Up. Over a career that spans some four decades, Patricia has taught improv to thousands of students at Stanford, online, and at the storied Esalen Institute in Northern California. It's going to be a great conversation, wherever it might go. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. And we'll be right back with Patricia Ryan Madsen to talk about improv, spontaneity, and how to gracefully embrace the moment. Hey, Aaron Walter here. Bob, Meredith, and I are so excited by the reception that Reconsidering has received from listeners. Turns out people are really enjoying the show. We're working really hard to bring you conversations from best-selling authors and deep thinkers who have insights that can help you find satisfaction in your work and your life. If you found the show meaningful and useful, we have a small ask. We hope that you can help us grow the community by just leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Yes, they now have podcast reviews too. Wherever you listen, just search for Reconsidering in the podcast directory and leave us a quick review. This will help others find the show. It's also really helpful for Bob and Meredith and me to get your feedback as it'll help us refine the show. Our sincere, deepest thanks in advance for your support. Now, let's get back to the show. I am Patricia Ryan Madsen, and I am sitting in El Granada, California, just north of Half Moon Bay in south of San Francisco. I was on the faculty at Stanford for almost 30 years in the drama department, and I wrote a book called Improv Wisdom. My interest in improv is not in the comedy part, but in how it's useful in everyday life. Fantastic. Well, we like to start our shows with a fun little lightning round of questions. Bob is the master of the lightning round, so I will pass the mic to him. Yeah. Ready to play? Yes. Ready. Here we go. Morning or night? Morning. Library or coffee shop? Library. Hotel or Airbnb? Airbnb. Sitting or standing? Sitting. Inside or outside? Inside. Sketching or photograph? Sketching. Watercolor or acrylics? Oh, watercolor. Atlas or encyclopedia? Encyclopedia. Jazz or classical? Classical. Cooking or baking? Baking. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Beauty or wisdom? Mm. Wisdom. Poetry or prose? Poetry. Nice. That's it. Oh, okay. And some of them I like them both. Yeah, yeah, no, you can always <laughs> like them both. I was a little surprised by a couple of your answers in there, actually. Yeah, I was too. 
Yeah, jazz or classical? I thought you would have gone jazz for sure. Mm, no, I'm not a fan of jazz. I'm, huh. I'm actually only marginally a fan of classical. What I really like is kind of space music. What does that mean? What is space music? Uh, hearts of space, stuff that's real calming. And mm. Um, mm. I don't know, sometimes it's acoustical, anything that is real down. It's the opposite of rock and roll. Brian Eno? Yes, Brian Eno, exactly. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, Patricia, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you on. I know all three of us have read your book, Improv Wisdom. I've honestly just changed the way I think about things after reading this book. So thank you so much for writing it. For the listeners who don't know about improv or improv wisdom, you talk a lot about the improv mindset. And I'm wondering if you could kind of help cue up our conversation a little bit with what that actually means. Love to. Improvisation is It's many things. It's also a way of looking at the world and at life. I call it sometimes a mindset. There's a built-in value system with this improv mindset that features being positive, being accepting and open, being willing to try things, and being willing to make mistakes and uh, show up. So many of the ideas that make improvisation work for jazz musicians or theatrical improvisers or for us in everyday life are counterintuitive. For example, one of the maxims of improvisation is be average. You might wonder what my Stanford students thought when I invited them to be average. It's like, really? But if you think about it, when we're trying to do our best in anything, There's a certain kind of edge and effort that's going on, and we sometimes miss being able to be in touch with our real natural intelligence. When we give up trying to be perfect or do it really well and just go for average or go for whatever is obvious to us, it's quite remarkable that when we take the pressure off ourselves, we can often really get even at our best work. So it's not that I'm against anything being good. But we do ourselves in, I think, in perfectionism and in stressing things and thinking too much. So improvisers learn to sort of act first and then reflect on that action rather than thinking it to death before we do anything. It's kind of a crazy, cattywampus way of working. Ready, fire, aim. (laughs) Patricia, many moons ago, when I was younger, I did a lot of improv and It's one of the scariest things I ever did because you are stepping into the unknown. You have no idea what you're going to do, what action you should take, how you should react to the moment. You can't plan. And so it's very disarming. When you think about improv, that improv mindset and your life, and that we're often, you know, kind of told we should plan, we navigate life with a calendar and a to-do list, and improv throws those things out the window and forces us to think on our feet. How do you use those maxims, the 13 maxims in your book, in your personal life to kind of guide you through a day? There's a disclaimer here, truth in writing. The subtitle of the book, Don't Prepare, Just Show Up, that's a lie. You can't not prepare. (laughs) Minds prepare. That's what they do. They worry, they fret, they organize things. So what I really mean is while preparing, don't let that preparation 
get in the way of actually showing up and being there fully with your own natural mind and voice. We do ourselves in because when we prepare, then we present the preparation. We read the speech. We give it again, and we're not there anymore. We've all heard speakers and politicians who are reading their speech, and they're not talking to us. They're presenting. And so what we discover as improvisers, and I'll bet, I'll bet this was true for you, Aaron, that confidence follows success. At the end of the improv show, when you did something, where you came off stage from a sketch, and it worked, there's a sense of empowerment. So we often feel good about ourselves once we have experienced that improvising is an honored way to do something. Certainly, we've had the experience of something going amiss. People are coming over for dinner or we've got a party underhand and something's not working. The meat that we were going to serve didn't thaw out or something like that. Then we use our natural intelligence to try to solve a problem. Even when the meat did thaw and we're using a recipe, we're improvising even when we're following the script in many ways. Great actors who are speaking text are also improvising because there's a freedom underneath the text or the lines that good actors are in touch with that flow of natural intelligence and response. One of the things that improvising teaches us to do is to trust reality, trust our lives, and trust that everything we've done in the past brings us to this moment. So if I can trust that it's more important to try to be present and listen to the question and make sense out of right now, rather than preparing something that may have no real purpose in the moment. We've all heard politicians who are asked one question, but answer with some other text because that's what they know. You're absolutely right. It's fear of the unknown. And we're all in that. Right now, this pandemic is a wildly uncertain time. We can't know if there will ever be a normal or a new normal. So what are the ways that we can move forward and improvising our life. And I might say the book has 13 maxims, but I've realized as I've gotten older, very old, that I can't remember 13 of anything. So I have condensed the 13 maxims into four principles that all start with A, so they're easy <laughs> to remember. And the fundamental improv talent or thing we want to cultivate is attention. Our attention is our superpower. And we're all now being buffeted from all sides and little red dots on our devices are asking for our attention and learning to monitor, if you will, and focus our attention on what's in front of us, on what we need to do rather than letting the mind just spin off into the future. Attention is the first day. The second day is acceptance. And once we notice what's going on, once we see what's in front of us or what the offer was that someone just made, we need to open to it and accept it. That doesn't mean like it, but we need to entertain and accept. So attention, acceptance. The third A is appreciation, which is once you have whatever has come your way, find the good and praise it. See if you can appreciate what's the possibility in whatever is there. And so once you've noticed what it is, accepted it, appreciated it, then you're in a position to act. 
which is the fourth A, to go forward. All sounds a little uh, sort of speechified. But the point is, improvisers in life, scared or not, sort of show up and be there. There's a a lot of interest these days in mindfulness. And I think there's a connection between the improv mindset and a mindful way of approaching things, being open, being positive. We just played a little game in, in an improv class where we give each other imaginary gifts. And your job as the receiver of the gift is to always say, oh, great, I needed that, and then explain why. So I'm gonna give Bob a gift right now. Bob, here is a box of herbs and spices from the Cayman Islands. Wow, thank you. I needed that. I have no idea what to do with these. (laughs) Aaron needed these. I'm going to give them to my wife because she is the chef at our family and she will know what to do. All right. If she doesn't want them, I will take them because I've heard that spices from the Cayman Islands are great for migraines. And as we know, I get migraines. So I'd love to give it a try. Excellent. Wonderful. (laughs) So we're looking for what is it? What way can we take whatever comes our way, whether we really know or not? Improvisers are making it up, which Bob did. He says, I can give this to my wife. She'll be very pleased with it. She Mm -hmm. knows how to use it. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to come at any offer, if you will, with a sort of an immediate sort of plus or minus judgment about it. So improvisers are programmed to say yes to whatever it is, and work with that, move it forward in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, while we're talking about this, I think the one word that keeps coming up in my mind is the word paralysis. We think of improv and we think of people getting on a stage and kind of winging it right then and there. But in real life, we're winging it every day, right? We're all in meetings. We're all having conversations with people. And we don't have a script when we go to the grocery store and talk to the person who's bagging our groceries. We don't have a script for when somebody's walking by us when we're taking the dog on a walk, right? And I think the one thing that your book kind of elevated to me was you need to stop thinking and you need to do it, right? And so my question to you now is, I think that's a lot easier said than done for a lot of people. Do you have any tips or tricks that you use just to get people started and just to get people motivated instead of having that paralysis? Wow. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And that's what happens often in an improv class where the teacher's trick is to throw more at them than they could process if they were trying to do it thoughtfully. A simple game called word ball. If I threw a word to Aaron... And his job would be to catch and repeat that word and then turn to someone else and throw another word. Mm-hmm. Can the three of us play that for a moment? That's it's good. real simple. Yeah. Just Don't worry about doing it right or good. So Aaron, tomato. Tomato. Meredith. Monkey. Bob. Banana. <laughs> my attention is not so great. So <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Yeah. I got banana. Yeah, I got banana. You just receive it. And that, that's really the, uh, the key thing is Bob was already thinking ahead. This is what we all, this, this is how this game teaches it because yeah. you're already thinking ahead of what word you might use. 
So we do this a couple of times until you realize that your real job is receiving and repeating. Listening and reacting. Listening and reacting. That's exactly right. So what we do after a couple of rounds of this, because Bob's response was the most perfect that happens. Everyone, there's an uh, and you know that somebody sent you banana, but then you're stuck for a moment. After a while, if we kept throwing words at each other, and I reminded you the important thing is to listen and receive. Just do that, then see what comes next. In fact, allow yourself to be surprised because very often the word that comes out of your mouth when you are sending surprises you because what we're aiming for is not thinking it up at all, but just letting something come through. It's a strange feeling, but if you do it for a while, it becomes a new way of processing what's going on. It also, you know, devices, activities like this, they break down that inhibition that's kind of built into this governing force in our daily lives. I've seen groups of leaders, sort of fancy pants people who are very successful, play a game like this, uh, but it was sound. So you just like make a sound and you pass it from this person to that person across the room. And it's just absolutely, it's silly, you know, and, and these are people who spend their life trying not to be silly. But after doing that, after everyone is silly together, it breaks down the barriers and people have different types of conversations, different types of connections. And I've seen this with a lot of artists and designers who are just, they bring creativity into their life every day. It's just kind of habitual that they're bringing this type of play into every moment that makes it easier to be creative and easier to be a, maybe a slightly more authentic version of themselves. That's perfect. It's exactly right, Aaron, because part of this standing with a group of CEOs and going whoosh, whoom, plab, boom, whack, hoodoo, everybody just doing something sort of out of the normal box of communication, it does change things. And it softens the sense of self, I think, if everybody is sort of in that room making silly noises together. The net result, I think, is, as you point out, to allow a more authentic self. That's why improv is a great life skill, because of course we worry about what people will think. But if you discover that just being there and giving your most natural response rather than a considered one is good enough and often better than if you had prepared. Everyday conversation is improvisation. And Meredith was right. We're improvising all the time without naming it that, unless we're reading a script when we talk with a partner or on the phone. Lightening up on ourselves is part of the process having fun. That's why improv is a form of play. And we all know that we're there to play, but there are big stakes involved. Those uh, boardrooms, Aaron, where people were playing that game, you notice the effect of it. It's also great not to be able to do it well, because then you discover, ah, that's what it feels like to prepare instead of receive. So I want to go back to something Aaron said a second ago, because the juxtaposition here is really interesting that you talk about improv as play, and it does seem fun. And, and there is sort of a comedic 
instinctual response when you hear improv. You think about it in the context of comedy. So in some ways, it sounds like a really attractive thing. But, you know, Aaron said earlier when he started doing it, like, it's terrifying. And when I really think about doing it, it's terrifying. And I'm sort of struck by that juxtaposition of being afraid to play. I'm wondering if you see that in your students, how that shifted over time. You know, you and I are a little bit more advanced in our years than maybe some of the other folks on the call. And so you've probably seen some evolution of how this changed over the years with your students. Is this like a cultural thing? Is it just a human thing? Like Human thing. The okay. Buddhist said in one of the Buddhist literature, there are five human fears. The fear of death, the fear of loss of reputation, the fear of loss of income, fear of loss of consciousness, and the fifth one is fear of speaking in front of people. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, I didn't sleep well last night because I knew I was going to have this interview with you. I'm improvising. Now, I'm going to feel okay, I hope, after this call. What I learn is that I'm able to be present. And sometimes if I'm actually present and answering a question, I'm more likely to come up with something that's useful. Mm -hmm. There's a way that my whole life and my natural ability to make sense or to put sentences together is liberated if, as we're doing, I'm talking and correcting myself sometimes or saying something that's foolish and then coming back and working around it. Do you think that speaking in public and reputation, that those two things are connected, that that's I mean, it feels almost like they're the same thing. Of course it is. Exactly. Reputation. And we're all desperate to be okay in the realms of our lives, to have a reputation. The ultimate fear in speaking in front of people is that you'll make a fool of yourself. Mm -hmm. Of course. This never goes away. But what you say in your book, which I'm going to interrupt you here because I thought it was really great and it it really made me think. And I think Bob, Aaron, and I have been on stage and at least I get the jitters when I'm about to speak. And the reality of things, nobody wants you to fail, right? They're here to listen to you. And you call that out really explicitly. And I think just changing your mindset a little bit and realizing that, yeah, I'm up here. People want to hear me. People don't want to hear me fail up there, right? And so I think that's part of it is just really embracing the fact that what you have to say is important. And if you do mess up on stage, it's not the end of the world. Or if you do mess up in a meeting, it's not the end of the world. Nine times out of 10, nobody's going to remember what you messed up on. They're going to remember if they came out of that with a good feeling or they felt empowered or impacted by the conversation. You're absolutely right. And I think it's not only they forget or forgive your mistakes. I think your status gets raised in public if you recover from something or say that "Hmm, that wasn't exactly right or wrong. I think we've had recently political leaders who are not able to admit mistakes or to show their humanity. I think one of the reasons that I'm able to keep teaching is that in being myself in front of people and admitting something like I didn't sleep last night, that somehow I'm more credible if you see me in public with different sides, not just my expert voice. Hmm. Had too many experts. I think the world needs humans as well as those who have 
got all of their P's and Q's together. So that's a really interesting concept. You know, we've heard from some of our other guests, Brad Stolberg from season one talked about the power of vulnerability. And it was a really special moment on the show. And I think part of what you're getting at is that when we are vulnerable and we kind of expose ourselves, we fear that our reputation is going to diminish. But in fact, it might actually increase because people then see us as more authentic and they realize that we're making mistakes. And they can identify with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true, that vulnerability is a human trait we don't see that much of. We're kind of really afraid to show that. Bob's absolutely right. I I think it often has a real positive effect on one's view. Improvisers will also capitalize on mistakes, too. So mistakes are a funny thing because they're just a different thing happening than what we expected in many cases. I mean, there's clerical mistakes that can be corrected. Yeah, Aaron has this great line about a weed's just a plant that's in the wrong place. Yeah. You know, maybe a mistake's just an, an action that's slightly mistimed. I don't know, it's something like that, you know. Right. The first maxim of improv, and probably anyone who's ever heard anything about the subject knows, is that the cardinal rule is to say yes. Mm-hmm. To say yes and, and then build upon whatever the subject is. So that if you and your partner jump on stage for a scene and your partner says, nice dog you've got there, Charles, that the acceptance of that offer is key to going forward. So if instead you say something like, uh, that's not my dog, that's my wife, <laughs> uh, you'll of course get a, get a big house laugh. And most comedy, when you begin to analyze it, is negating what the other person says. So you can get lots of laughs by going back and forth and putting each other down. A decent improviser would immediately, nice dog you've got there. Yes, he's my schnauzer. We're, we're taking him to the dog show. So would accept whatever the offer is and add something to it. So we start with the premise that we're going to work in an agreeable way with each other, which is also something that's gotten lost today. Sadly, politicians have not been able to agree on anything, day of the week. or I could th- We could expand that circle to most people on the planet. <laughs> it's absolutely true, yeah. And so the lack of understanding or agreeing is a huge part of what makes improv training in games and why I think it's being used by corporations and educational institutions to try to see what happens in this metaphor of an improv environment What happens if you say yes to things and build on each other's ideas? I think there's something deeper to that, which is with improv, when you're doing it well, there's flow. There's just movement. When you're doing it poorly, you or your partners create stoppers that you have to always like climb over to kind of keep things moving. And it takes up a lot more energy. This is where I think just like the fundamental principles that you talk about in your book about improv acting and how that applies to our life in different places. Like to me, this is about as fundamental as it gets that a good life, a life that feels good, it feels satisfying, it feels comfortable, feels like it's full of growth and connection has flow. It has movement. And key to that is saying yes within our life to opportunities, to what was unexpected, and gratitude of like the things that are unexpected that come to you. 
How do you think about saying yes in your life? Because sometimes saying yes too much can actually be problematic in your life. Sure. And I think each of us will likely know if by saying yes to everything and everybody have maybe neglected ourselves or something like that, that there's undoubtedly an overuse of this principle. But I suggest that people try it. There's more an abstract notion that I'm going to yes myself into overload. We already have a lot, but it's somehow saying, seeing what's actually in front of us and working and appreciating what that is rather than what it's not. You brought up gratitude. It's really key. One of the maxims is wake up to the gifts. And I tell the story about I spent time in Japan in a monastery where during the week I was investigating, going through my life, thinking about my mother first and then my father and other members of the family and asking the question during various periods of my life, what did I receive from them? What did I give back to them? And what trouble and bother did I cause them? So I would sit and reflect on that for a period of time, my school years or my college years or from birth to age four. And then a guide would come and I'd report out what I was able to remember. Now, the interesting thing is that those aren't questions that we commonly ask, certainly not the third question of what trouble am I causing others? We certainly know a lot about the trouble others cause us. We're experts on that. But to ask the question, what have I done or failed to do? And look for examples of that is very enlightening. And when we notice how much we have received from others, it's eye-opening. Right now, we're being connected by the miracle of technology that's allowing four of us in different parts of the world to hear and see each other. And then these words will be moved and broadcast out to others. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. Unbelievably amazing. Unbelievably amazing. It is. And not only something like this, but when I turn on the faucet in my sink and running hot and cold water comes, isn't that a gift? Isn't the sunlight a gift? Don't we have gifts of the medical system that is caring for so many people? and the reporters and the scientists who are trying to get information to us. When we look at everything that's going on from the vantage point of how I am receiving and benefiting from the work of others, it changes things. Even the most annoying thing can shift. We all sometimes spend time with customer service. And sometimes when you imagine a poor customer service representative sitting somewhere in the Philippines, or uh, I just talked to one recently in South Africa, and they're sitting in a room all day trying to help me solve a technical problem. Just to imagine what this kind of thinking invites you to do is look from the other person's perspective to see what they're doing. We all know what we're doing to help others. I'm happy to take credit for having made the bed today or, uh, <laughs> or, or turn the coffee on or something. Do we notice and thank others when we're the beneficiary in the grocery store, for example? So an improviser notices what they're receiving and they see it as a kind of a gift. It may be a gift that's a sweater that doesn't fit, but it's nonetheless a gift and they work from that vantage point. So I think encouraging 
positive response, encouraging real listening, encouraging gratitude, saying thank you all the time. Thank you and I'm sorry are two really important words that we don't use enough. I use this method today, actually. I think it's called Nikon, this Japanese philosophy of asking these three questions. What were you given? What did you give? And what is the trouble that you caused others? I had a sewer leak under my front yard today, and I thought, this is terrible. And I thought to myself, what a gift it is that there are people here that are able to fix this with the skills. And I went to pick up lunch and it was like 30 minutes late and my puppy was in the car and I thought, he's going to destroy my car. And I thought, what a gift it is <laughs> that I have a puppy <laughs> <laughs> and that someone is making lunch. It's very helpful to change your mindset in those moments. Fabulous. I'm delighted with those examples because that's exactly how it is. If that becomes your default mindset, if you can turn everything around that seems to be a disaster into the fact that help is at hand. I was in the, the Safeway and they have these stations where you can check yourself out. And every now and again, something goes wrong and you're trying to, I don't know, weigh the tomatoes or something. But the machine had a default little thing that said, just wait, help is on the way. Please wait. <laughs> on the way. And I thought, that's true. And, and, and in a moment, a, a clerk would come over and would, would fix the problem. And I thought, you know, help is on the way. And we're all so lucky and blessed. And that doesn't mean that there aren't disasters in the world and sickness and people in need. But to get our own perspective, I think these Nikon questions can really help us not just become a Pollyanna, but become more realistic. Well, it's so important, I think, to just imagine other people's points of view. It's it's really easy now in the pandemic. You know, we're all sitting at home. We're pretty isolated. We already are living in a culture that celebrates us. You know, you talk about in the book how, I believe it was Bill McKibben, had spent so much time, 3,700 hours of TV that he'd watched. And he said, you know, the overwhelming impression is that the world is about you. You know, when I think about what's going on, I just, I mean, I don't know. I live like a really fortunate life. And you think about all the other people that are having to deal with this thing differently and putting yourself in their position, like really trying to imagine that tech support person in South Africa, trying to talk people through really complicated technical issues over the phone, like just what that reality is. It opens you up to the idea that the world is actually not about you. That's the first line that I say when I teach an improv class and they get us all in the room and I say, the most important thing you need to know of all the improv rules and things we'll do is it's not about you. Yeah, that must really come out. I mean, my daughter played a lot of team sports. You know, I mostly did individual sports growing up. I did play in bands, in pop bands, kind of cover bands and stuff. And there is something just unbelievably magical about that moment when you're connecting in that way. And I mean, that must come across sometimes, that magic moment in the improv stuff. You know, there's so little of that in our normal lives. If you're playing Guitar Hero, you don't have that. You know, if you're riding on a bike doing endurance training, you don't have that. You know, it's, it's very rare that we come together to have those shared experiences. Just a quick little improv thing. I went to a concert this weekend, a jazz concert up in San Francisco uh, with the trumpetist uh, Chris Bodie. Super excited to see Chris Bodie. He comes out on stage, amazing act of bravery. He takes the stage. The moment he walks out, everybody in the audience is like, 
he doesn't look so good. <laughs> he started playing about two minutes into the concert. He asked for a stool. About three minutes into the concert, he just looked up at the audience. He said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I'll refund all your money. And he walked off stage. Oh. Turns out he'd gotten food poisoning and he was super oh. sick. But here we all were on a Sunday afternoon, ready to see Chris Bode perform. And he just wasn't going to be able to do it. And the band sort of looked at each other. And then they sort of said, well, I don't know, let's play a couple of tunes. And so they came out and played his core band, the guitar, bass, drums, piano, played a couple of songs. It was kind of going really well. And the audience, we were really into it. We were People applauded Chris for at least trying. Like The audience was so receptive in that moment. And then they just ended up kind of doing the show, but without Chris. And it was this, it was actually a really, probably one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Because you could really see them as a band, you know, having to make the eye contact and pass notes back and forth. And they were having to wing it. And it was really, really powerful. Right. Yeah. Did you think of Chris Bode in a different way after he was so vulnerable in front of the crowd? I thought differently about Chris Bode along the lines of him as a leaderless leader. I hoped that he felt really proud of his band because the drummer ended up kind of becoming the de facto MC of the show and had to take the stage and announce what was going on. And it was not something he was comfortable about doing, at least not at the beginning of the show. By the end, he actually seemed pretty good with it, you know, and seemed okay with it. But seeing them come together as a unit, actually, I really had a different appreciation for Chris Bode as a leader and that he could get these guys onto the stage to play together and they could perform in his absence and carry the whole thing off. I was impressed with him that he tried to come out to the show and he had the vulnerability to step off. He also realized like playing trumpet's pretty physically demanding. So I wasn't surprised that he kind of had to give up physically. (laughs) You know, I just don't think he could have pulled it off. But the way his band performed, I just was hopeful that he was super proud of them, which does bring me to a point, Patricia, which is, you know, when you talk to corporate leaders, one of your maxims talked about what I might call leaderless leadership. And I'm wondering if you could describe that idea a little bit and what kind of reception it gets with corporate executives who probably are used to wielding authority in a certain way. Well, certainly the way improv works is that Everyone in the group has this conundrum. You are always responsible and you're never in control, which is an odd dichotomy. In a hierarchical system, you can sit back because it's not your job. This is so-and-so's job. I think I give the example maybe in the book about people sharing a house together. And in the linear house, there's a list of Marge washes the dishes one week and somebody else cooks and somebody else cleans. And so you look up and see what you're supposed to do and you do it and then you're free and you're on your own. But in the improviser's house, everyone is always responsible and never in control. So if you see something that needs to be done, you do it. And everybody then is sort of on their honor to be working within that rubric. And it works if everybody tries their best to do what needs to be done when they see it. And that's what improvisers do when they jump on stage. They can't just wait for their cue. They have to be listening and absorbing what's happening. And they jump in and add something if that's what's needed. Sometimes it's a mistake or it seems to be a mistake. And then we're all working with that. But it sounded like in that concert, Bob, the rest of the musicians all came in and worked together to do what needed to be done, which is to create a show and entertain everybody. Yeah, they just kind of kept going. And of yeah. course, they're jazz musicians, so inherently there's, a, there's an improvisational aspect to what they can do. 
and they ended up just playing the set list. And I can't imagine what was going on in their head because they had to leave out the parts where Chris is supposed to have his big solo. Um, you know, but it was it's definitely interesting. And I, I, Patricia, I love that phrase: "Everyone is responsible, but no one is is in control." Because I think that kind of captures a really interesting reality about so many of the political and environmental crisis and many of the societal challenges we have. Is you know there is this desire that you just kind of wish somebody was in control and they could just fix climate change, for example. And that's not going to happen. You know, it's, I mean, we're dealing with these issues that require the coordination of all seven and a half billion of us. And we're all responsible, but there's nobody in control. I know. And if we accept that or believe that, what it tells us to do is to take responsibility rather than, well, that's just too bad because nobody's in control. Let's give up and just put our feet up and generations to come will have to deal with this. Well, I don't know. It's uh, sometimes there's so much on everybody's plate that it's you wonder what you can do. But we practice doing what we can. Well, I think you feel I mean, I've kind of gotten into this thing about picking up trash in the neighborhood. I've taken a little inspiration from David Sedaris on this one. You know, when I see trash, I'm like, I just pick it up. Like I can sit here and complain about the person who left it or I could just pick it up and put it in the trash can. So just just shut up, pick it up and put it in the trash can. And there's something empowering about it. You know, even though it's not like I'm fixing the world's litter problem, you know, at least acknowledging that I can take some responsibility and fix it, even if I'm not in control and I didn't cause it, you know, it does make you feel better. Yeah. Well, it's not only that. My favorite quote of the week is a Dalai Lama quote, never resist a generous impulse. Hmm. Or we might say a constructive impulse. Yesterday, I did exactly that. I happened to notice trash and I picked it up because I could. It's not that I necessarily get back, but I do feel better. But it, that's not really the reason to do it. Somehow, if we develop habits of doing the little tiny things that we can do when we see it to be done, that's one of the ways that we take responsibility in this world where no one's in control. I want to pivot our conversation for just a second as we're winding down here, how did improv affect your confidence and your self-awareness from when you started to where you are now? Well, truth in lending here, I have never performed improv, even though I founded a group who does improv performances. I think what I have learned over the 30 plus years of being a spokesperson for improvising is that my own desire to please and be liked has not changed really, but that I'm willing to show up and be places in different situations and trust that reality will help give me what I need to say or do. I have, I'd call it reality confidence, not self-confidence, because I don't know about me, but I do know that if I keep showing up, with an intention to be useful. I would say that's my life's purpose, to show up and be useful when I can, that I've found that sometimes I am useful. So I've got now a backlog of experience of that choice to show up, having been a pretty good way of doing it. And so at the end of this, when I go off and my husband will say, how did it go? And I'll say, well, I think, okay. I, I thought we had a good conversation and brought up some things that are possibly useful to people. 
that's kind of a metric that I use. I know I enjoyed the conversation with these bright people. And I trust that an editor will fix any of the gaffes that we make. So I think I can say that I am more confident as I get older that I have what I need. One of the little cards that I make says, you already have what you need. Improvisers use everything. And so there's a sense of ecology in let go, notice more, use everything. These are the three maxims of uh, Robert Poynton, who wrote a lovely book, Do Improvise or Everything's an Offer. There's quite a few people that are writing about the philosophy of improv now, but it's about these things we've been talking about, of authenticity, vulnerability, and try see. The other thing is the more you show up in life and improvise as you go, you get a lot of experience. It's humbling too, because it doesn't always work out, but then it doesn't always work out when you prepare like crazy and knock yourself out trying to do it right. Mm -hmm. Doesn't always go well, but the thing about improv is it always keeps moving. So there's another (laughs) opportunity around the corner. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So Patricia, we like to close with kind of another standard question that we like to ask, which is, I want you to try to imagine yourself when you were 25. And I want you to try to really bring that Patricia into your mind. If if I recall, you were out of college and you were thinking you were going to go down an academic path and you were hoping to get tenure in a job and stuff. So I want you to imagine that Patricia. And I want you to imagine if the Patricia you are today could sit down with that Patricia, what advice would 25-year-old Patricia have for you today? Oh, not the other way around. Gosh, the 25-year-old Patricia would say to me, keep on noticing the wonders of your life. Everything's possible. Notice the gifts and appreciate. doesn't matter how old you are. You've got a lot you can contribute to others. I love that. Keep on noticing the wonders of your life. That's lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. That was a lot of fun. That was. I loved her book. And some of the stuff she said was just so inspirational and moving and I think really powerful. And you know, for me, the whole thing was just such a great reminder of we are living in the most demanding of improv moments. We're improving together. You know, I, like you, I really enjoyed the book. And I feel like there's so many pieces that are very applicable to like regular life. I especially enjoyed axiom number 12, take care of each other. Is there some stuff in here about rescue or join someone struggling? From my time doing improv, that was something you do when someone's just like totally tanking. They can't find the thread of the the narrative or, you know, the joke, you jump in and sort of like rescue them. And, you know, that's such an important thing with life too, not to sort of wallow in the sufferings of the pandemic, but that is definitely a lesson that I took away is that community and looking in on friends during dark times when they, they need you and they're maybe not asking, that's a really important thing. And it's not just good for them. It's also a gift for me to have that opportunity to be of service. This is another concept that she shared with us. It's like, how might I be useful? And, you know, I just find that that makes for a very satisfying life is when you can be of use to other people. 
Meredith, how about you? There are a few things I, I took away from it. The first one is somebody who's very type A and who is always prepared and who's always got to have like everything put together. It really kind of shifted my mindset to the fact that like you lose out on a lot of the quality of a conversation and the quality of interactions if you have everything planned and prepared. So like if you have, you know, a bunch of questions for a meeting or if like you think you're going to have like points of conversations at a dinner party or something like that when we had them, it kind of ruins the moment. And so for me, it was just kind of taking a step back and realizing that not everything has to be planned and prepared and it's okay to just kind of go with the flow. Yeah. The whole book starts with this premise that there are these two types of wisdom or knowledge. There is the like book kind of learned, remembered, wrote type of knowledge, which most of us cultivate. We're trained to cultivate that because that's, you know, you go to school and that's the model. And then there's this instinctual kind of reactionary wisdom that is part of who we are, which is embodied by, you know, people like Bob Dylan, love him or hate him. His career was very much about this spontaneity and cultivating creativity. I think we saw with the recent documentary series about the Beatles, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Get Back, mm -hmm. the same sort of thing of just like cultivating that creativity and instinct, that that's something that most of us, we don't let out of the box. It's in us and we don't allow it to be part of our lives. We don't allow ourselves to play and judgment guides most of our days. I wonder how much it's, it's, it's kind of this weird paradox where the world's getting less predictable and things are getting harder to control. And I think we have this instinct to try to plan more as a way of creating this illusion that we have control because it creates security. You know, my wife is very much a planner and my daughter's that way. You know, I'm probably not as much as I could be. Meredith, I know you're very much you're a not. planner. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah. So, like, emotionally, have you found dealing with the chaos of the moment? Like, does it rub against your planning instinct? And where do you think that planner instinct comes from? It definitely does. I mean, you know, I'm a person that plans out the week. Like, when I'm going to the grocery store, what time's the dog being walked? Like, I'm very set in a very kind of strict schedule. And I feel like, Anything is chaos when that doesn't happen. And I think the biggest shift for me was actually moving from working in a full-time job to becoming a consultant where you have to actually put your own structure in place and you have to go with the flow and realize that anything can happen, right? Like things change. There's like expectations are different. And so for me, it started as just take this day by day. And I think the more you start to embrace the ambiguity, the more comfortable you feel with it. But it's hard to get there. You know, I mean, especially for somebody who's super type A like me, but I also kind of sit back and go, okay, well, what if this doesn't happen? Or what if I, I don't do this? Or, or what if the dog doesn't go on a walk and I decide to play ball with him instead? And you realize that once you try something different and you kind of get out of your normal habits, the easier it is to continue to get out of those habits. Yeah, my main resolution for the year was to try to rid myself of any expectations about the future and just accept things as they are right here, right now, because the future has become unpredictable. And I've realized that when I try to predict the future, I'm trying to project myself there. And I risk incredible disappointment because I've formed an expectation of the future. That expectation is unlikely to be met. And therefore, I'm either going to be frustrated or disappointed. In some ways, it's just sort of a self-preservation strategy. But it is pretty liberating. You know, it's very hard to do because it exposes you to the reality that we were all very vulnerable 
and that we were all making it up as we go along. But even just in the early few weeks of the new year, I think it's made me more forgiving about the public officials who are having to make policy related to the pandemic. You know, whereas it's really easy to get frustrated with them and what you might view as inconsistencies of decisions and stuff, I can kind of look at it and go, you know, they're all just making it up, man. <laughs> you know, like nobody's faced this before. They're all just doing their best. And my frustration that might be targeted towards them is probably actually just frustration with the situation. And again, that frustration is being born out of me having some formed idea of what I want the future to be. And if I can let go of that, then I can take to heart what I thought was one of the most powerful things Patricia said, which is, you know, keep on noticing the wonders of your life. Because despite what is going on, you know, we do live in magical times. You know, getting locked in our homes and having a quarantine is not what it was during 1918. You know, when we get locked in our homes, for many of us, you know, we're stuck with Netflix. It's not, you know, it's not, and we, and we have vaccines and we know a way out of it. But yeah, the future is very uncertain. And that's the reality. And that's always been the reality. I think the other thing that I really resonated with, with Patricia and her book was the whole, nobody wants you to fail. And I think that was like, just really powerful to hear is that it doesn't hurt to try something because nobody really wants you to fail, right? Like people are nine times out of 10 more your cheerleaders and your advocates than they are the people that are rooting against you. And I think it's just a nice reminder that, you shouldn't feel prohibited from trying something because you're scared. You should try it and see what happens. And if you keep doing it over and over again, it'll kind of become like a new habit. Awesome. Well, I think we will call it a show there. Thank you both. That was a lot of yeah. fun. Thanks again to Patricia Matson for joining us. That was an awesome episode. And look forward to seeing and hearing you both next time here on Reconsidering. Talk to you later. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kima Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.